I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We'll start with verse 26 as we have throughout this series where we've been talking on spiritual authority and spiritual dominion. Um, Let me start off with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the privilege to speak your word tonight. I thank you that your word is sure and it's true. It's a solid foundation for us. Father, my purpose here tonight is not to tell people things that they don't know, but to simply speak the truth of the word so that the Holy Spirit has opportunity to open our eyes to and reveal that truth to our spirits. I pray, Father, that that's exactly what would be done tonight, that we would see and know who we are in Christ like we've never seen and like we've never known. Cause us, Father, to realize through the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Cause us to realize who we are and what authority we have in the name of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Man was created an exact duplication of God in kind. Remember the law of Genesis is that everything reproduces after its own kind. Well, God made man after his own kind. He made him after his likeness and in his image. For one purpose that's stated in scripture and that is for him to have dominion. Now we know what happens. Adam and Eve fall in the Garden of Eden. Uh, They lose their place of authority. God told Adam in the day that he disobeys and eats of the forbidden tree, he shall surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die for 930 years. Well, what death is he talking about then? He's talking about spiritual death. And this is the spiritual death that was unleashed upon mankind through Adam's sin. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man, speaking of Adam... Wherefore, by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. Death passed upon all men. The Bible tells us that, that, uh, well, the the church talks about things in terms of a sin problem. The church seems to look at sin as the issue. But sin is really not the issue. Spiritual death is the issue. The Bible says in uh, Ephesians that, Jesus died for us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Sin was the entry, but death, spiritual death was the result. So Adam now is in a spiritually dead condition. He's separated from God. The life of God has departed from him. He's living on the earth, guided by his five physical senses, rather than the spirit of God from within him as he had from the beginning. And this is the condition, the curse that's upon all of mankind. Now, if God's going to do anything to restore and redeem man, which was his plan, the Bible says Jesus was slain from the creation of the worlds. I believe that that means the original creation of the world, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not the recreation of the earth or what we know of as the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. God's plan, I believe, of redemption, redeeming mankind was eternal. So if God is going to follow through with his plan of redemption, he's got to do something about the death problem. He's got to do something about spiritual death, not just sin. We see in the the Old Testament that God made many provisions for the forgiveness of sins. 
the Day of Atonement was the one time each year when God dealt with the sin problem of Israel once per year. But that didn't change man's nature. Man was still spiritually dead even though his sins were forgiven. And you may remember that in the Garden of Eden after Adam fell, one of the things that God was concerned about, he said, man has become like us to know good and evil. It's an interesting thought. God knows good and evil not by experience. Man knew it by experience. So he said, man has become as one of us. Now lest he take of the, partake of the tree of life and stay that way forever, God blocked his path back to the tree of life until we could receive it through Jesus. Until we could partake of the tree of life through Jesus and his work and, and sacrifice on the cross. So God had one main purpose, it seems, and that is to destroy spiritual death, the spiritual death nature of mankind. Well, the Bible gives us many, many types of Jesus in the Old Testament. The Bible says the whole reason that the Old Testament is given to us as believers is because it serves as types and shadows of what we have and what was to come. One of the things that we looked at last week, and if you weren't here with us, I want to encourage you to get the, get the message. We talked about the type of the Day of Atonement sacrifice. How that the, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, the one time, the major sacrifice each year that dealt with the sins of Israel as a nation or as a people, consisted of two parts. There were two sacrifices. There were two lambs that were at work. One was the sin offering. We know about that one. He was the one who was slain and the blood was sprinkled on the elements of the tabernacle. The Bible talks about the sin offering always being and staying, remaining holy. And anything that comes in contact with it is holy. But then the second part of the sacrifice, not too many people are either familiar with it or realize the significance thereof, it seems. Because the second part of the sacrifice was a, a, a lamb or a, a goat. Those are interchangeable terms throughout the Old Testament. It talks about an animal that was just as perfect, just as pure, without spot and blemish, upon which the high priest would lay both hands upon its head and pronounce all the curses of Israel upon that goat. It was a symbol of transference. The high priest as representative of the people. He had to make a sacrifice for himself to be considered holy before God too. He lays his hands on this goat spotless, pure, innocent, and pronounces the curses upon it. In other words, he transfers, symbolically, he transfers all the sins of Israel away from Israel and on to this animal. Then it's led into a land not inhabited, led out into the wilderness where the judgment of God falls upon it. Well, Jesus fulfilled both the sin offering and the scapegoat. And we went into some detail about how that the scapegoat suffered the punishment. The sin offering died and his blood was offered. But it wasn't the blood of the scapegoat that was, that was uh, utilized or a part of the sacrifice. The scapegoat's one person was to bear the judgment of the sins that were transferred or conferred upon it. Jesus had to fulfill that type too. That has to do with Jesus dying spiritually. But we don't want to build a doctrine on just one scripture or one set of scriptures. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. 
So we need to find if Jesus really was made sin for us, and if that means that he died spiritually, then we need a little bit more evidence from the scriptures for that, don't we? Than just one type. Well, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 11. We want to look at a couple of types this, this evening, just real quickly, of Jesus being made sin and bearing the punishment of sin for mankind. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. I want you to notice the word rod. Jesus is identified in the Old Testament scriptures as the rod out of the stem of Jesse. Talking about the house of David. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. Notice there's the word rod again. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Now the Bible tells us a lot of times or on many different occasions about the use of the rod. Here the Bible is speaking of the rod of his mouth. Rods are always used throughout the scripture in a, um, a sense of judgment or correction or discipline. You remember that the rod was what Moses used on uh, many of the plagues concerning many of the plagues of Egypt. The rod was what he used to smite the Nile River and it turned to blood. The rod was what he used in stretching forth his hand over the land of Israel or land of Egypt, excuse me, to when the locusts came in. He used the rod for the frogs to come out of the, the Nile River. He used the rod, stretched forth the rod over the Red Sea and divided the Red Sea so that Israel could go over on dry land. But I want you to see another example. And, and the rod, each one of those times it's used, each one of those are types of Jesus exercising judgment upon the wicked and in some cases upon sin itself. I want you to turn back with me to Exodus chapter 7. I want you to remember with me one of the ways that the rod was used. Exodus chapter 7. We'll start reading in verse, uh, well, let's start in verse 8. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say, Unto Aaron, take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. You remember if Moses had already done this. He had already had some experience with the rod when he was standing before God at the burning bush, which this is speaking of as well. God asked Mo Moses what he had in his hand, and he had a rod. Typical shepherd's tool. He told him to cast it on the ground, and when he did, it turned into a snake. Moses ran from his own stick. God then spoke to him and told him to take it up by the tail. I don't know if you know anything about snakes, but tails are not what you want to grab on a snake. 
But he told him to take it by the tail and it turned back into the rod. So now God is giving him instruction on the use of the rod. First time he uses it for anything of significance in the work of God. So he says, when Pharaoh asked for a miracle, tell Aaron to take the rod and cast it before Pharaoh and it shall become a serpent. Well, Moses has seen that before. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. Now let me ask you a question. Why does the rod turn into a snake? A snake always represents evil in the Bible. A snake always represents sin. Why would Moses' rod, why would the, the, the very thing that Moses had in his hand that would become the sign of his power before Pharaoh and to, to deliver the children of Israel. And if you have a daily Bible reading, you know that the deliverance of Israel from Egypt is spoken of time and time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament. God keeps reminding his people, remember I delivered you by the hand of Moses out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you through the Red Sea on dry land. Time and time and time again, God refers back when he's speaking to the people, when he's speaking to the prophets, when he's warning the people, even when he's condemning the people for having turned away and disobeyed him. He speaks of that over and over and over again. So why would the symbol of God's power in the hands of Moses, who Israel considered to be the greatest of all the prophets, why would that be a snake? We know it's Jesus. Isaiah 11 is real clear on that. The rod of the stem of Jesse has got to be Jesus. It's talking about him executing judgment with the rod of his mouth. That's a symbol of the word of God, of course. Why a snake? It seems like God could have picked a more holy symbol than a snake. Well, Aaron throws the rod down before Pharaoh and it turns into a serpent. Verse 11, then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments for they cast down every man his rod and they became serpents. But notice the difference. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Now what's happening here? God is showing Pharaoh, he's even revealing to Satan, that which is to come. It's an interesting thing because we have an idea and I think some of it comes from one of the translations we use uh, concerning speaking in tongues where it says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God for no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. I always quote Weymouth's translation or refer to Weymouth's translation where it says instead of speaking mysteries it says he speaks divine secrets. Well, for that reason... Maybe others as well, but for that one primarily for me, I think we have the idea oftentimes that God is doing everything in secret. But that's not true. There are secrets that he has between him and his people, his children. But God has no problem with telling the devil straight up, here's what I'm going to do. Because he knows either the devil doesn't have the wisdom to figure it out or he doesn't have the power to stop it. God does not work in secret. He does not work in the shadows. 
He works in the open. He works in the light. He wants the devil to know that he, the devil, is no match for God's power. This is one of those examples. He's showing the devil clearly what's going to happen. Because this rod, which is the type of Jesus, swallows up the other serpents. In other words, Jesus, the representation of Jesus with evil, swallows up all the evil that represents mankind. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 speaks of this very thing. Verse 8, talking of Jesus, it said, He will swallow up death in victory. There's an Old Testament promise or prophecy concerning the Messiah. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all of the faces, from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away and from off all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. Verse 9 goes on to say, and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So notice the time frame that he's talking about. He's talking about swallowing up death in victory in relation to connected with salvation. So when the rod of Pharaoh, uh, when the rod was cast down, Moses' rod was cast down before Pharaoh. The magicians did the same thing. You got a floor full of snakes. The difference in those symbols of evil was that one was used by God. One was presented there by the plan and the purpose of God, and that one swallowed up all the other ones. That's exactly what Jesus did when he became the scapegoat. That's exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross and suffered spiritual death for the sake of mankind. He swallowed up death, not sin. He swallowed up death in victory. Now I want you to look with me also to Numbers chapter 21. That's the second type of Jesus that refers to the swallowing up or the destruction of death. For the sake of mankind. And again, where the Bible's talking about death, it rarely, if ever, is talking about physical death. The death that is spoken of in connection with Jesus was not even his death on the cross. That's not the death that saved us. That's not the death that made the, the opened the door for us to the Father. The death that opened the door for you and I to eternal life, to be able to be born again, to be new creatures in Christ Jesus, was spiritual death. Numbers chapter 21, it tells about when Moses has led the children of Israel to the promised land, but they rejected God's plan, and now they're spending 40 years in the wilderness. This is late in those 40 years. Throughout the, the period of time, there have been uh, instances where they've murmured against God, against Moses, and has brought trouble every time, but they just won't learn. So it says, beginning in verse 4, and they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass or encircle the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Now, I'm sure you've never been there, but notice what happened when they were there. When they were discouraged because of the circumstances, 
the difficulty of the journey. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, whereof you, saying, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Like that's his fault. They're going to die in the wilderness for one and only one reason. And that is Numbers chapter 14, verse 27. God said, I will, as they have spoken in my ear, so shall I do unto them. Well, that's when they had come to the promised land. And they said, we can't go in. The people are stronger than us. It'd be better for us to die in the wilderness than to try to take the promised land. God said, okay, you can have it the way you said it. So those are the reasons. That's the reason why these things are happening. Not because of Moses or anything he's done. People spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth or hates this light bread. The light bread he's talking about is manna, which God's providing for them every day. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Now, we always have to talk about this a little bit. I wish we didn't, but too few people understand the difference between the Hebrew language and the English language. The King James translation is a transliteration. What that means is it's as close to a word-for-word translation as the translators could come up with. But the English and the Hebrew languages have a lot of differences. One of the differences is here, and that is there is a verb in the Hebrew language that's in the permissive sense that the King James in many cases translates it into the causative sense. A better translation would be the Lord allowed That's not entirely accurate either because the reality is there were fiery serpents in the land that we know of as the wilderness that the the Israelites traveled through. The reality is very simply this. As long as they were walking in obedience, the fiery serpents couldn't come into the camp and among the people. It was only when they disobeyed God that his hand of protection was lifted from him, from them, not by him, not because God wanted it to be so, but because they chose to sin. Sin is always a choice. Sin is never because God made you do it. God tells you not to, and he gives you the power to keep from it. He gives you instruction to, to protect you in every circumstance. So here where it says the Lord sent fiery serpents, the King James makes it sound like God had a hand in doing this because it was his will. And that's not the case. The reality is the fiery serpents came in because the people sinned by speaking against God and against Moses, as it says in the previous verse. So he says, the fiery serpents came in among the people and they bit the people and much of the people of Israel died. Well, that wasn't God's plan. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, now notice what the people understand. People understand a lot more than the modern day church. People came to Moses And said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now, what does Israel understand? Israel understands that their individual sin caused the calamity and the destruction that's come upon them. They realize that God's not the cause of the destruction. He's the answer to the destruction. So they say, pray that God would do something about these snakes. And the Lord said, verse 8, the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass. Brass is always the type of the judgment or type of judgment. You remember one of the uh, uh, things that God told Israel is if they disobeyed him, 
then the heavens above them would be like brass. In other words, their, their prayers wouldn't be answered. It's a judgment for disobedience. Again, not because God wants it to be that way, but because people choose to sin and turn away from him. So Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bit any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now I'm going to read to you from John chapter 3. Jesus talking about himself and going to the cross. Verse 16, of course, we all know that God, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you back up a couple of verses to verse 14, notice what Jesus says about himself and the work on the cross. Now, remember, the work on the cross, part of it was seen, part of it was unseen, just like with the Day of Atonement sacrifice. Everybody saw what happened to the lamb that was slain and whose blood was taken into the holy place and offered unto the Lord for the sins of the people. Everybody saw that one. Nobody saw what happened to the scapegoat. It was done in a manner that was hidden from eyes. Everybody's eyes were hidden from it. Nobody could see it. In the same way, Jesus paid a price that was seen. He died on the cross as our sin offering. But he fulfilled the type of the scapegoat in a way that nobody could see. So Jesus, knowing that he's going to fulfill the entirety of the sacrifice, the complete sacrifice, the sin offering and the scapegoat, says of himself in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That, here's the result of him being lifted up like Moses in the serpent, lifted up the serpent, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have ever, or everlasting or eternal life. So he's talking about Moses lifting up the serpent as being a type of him on the cross. He's the one that tells us what that type is. He's the one that tells us that he's the one that fulfilled that type. And again, the question has to be asked, why a serpent? Isn't there some kind of symbol that God could have used in the Old Testament that would more accurately represent Jesus the way that we think of him? I mean, how about a lion? The Bible says Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. How about a dove? We think of a dove in connection with the Holy Spirit. Why not some some other animal, some other symbol? Because it's very important for God to show that which Jesus would fulfill. The serpent was used because it represents evil. It represents sin. And Jesus, in paying the price for mankind, was not the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was not the lamb. He was becoming sin. And he would become sin to suffer the judgment of God, just like the brass serpent represents in Moses' case. Now, there's another place where Jesus refers to himself being lifted up. He doesn't talk about Moses' serpent. But that's over in John chapter 12. Might be interesting for you to see this as well. John chapter 12. Um, well, let me back up to verse 27. Jesus said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Now, John's giving us some information that none of the other gospel writers do. And as I've said oftentimes, John being the last of the gospel writers seems to be filling in the gaps that the other gospel writers left out. As an eyewitness to these events, the one of the ones that was closest to Jesus of all the disciples. 
So he tells us about Jesus speaking of himself and, and his passion toward the end of his ministry. So instead, Jesus said, what should I say to the Father? Deliver me from this. This is the whole reason I came. So instead, he said in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. And others said that an angel spoke to him, meaning to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me. In other words, it wasn't an angel talking to me. But for your sakes, the voice was for you to know who I am. Not for me to get information from God, not for God to communicate with me. Jesus knew what the father would do and what he'd promised. He didn't need something additional. He says the voice came for your sakes. Now notice what he goes on to say in connection with this event. And and this event is connected with the cross that's soon to be. The sacrifice. Both the sin offering and the scapegoat that would be paid and fulfilled. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus said in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. What judgment did Jesus come to bring? Did he come to judge man? No, there will come a time where he will. But Jesus didn't come to judge man. What did he come to judge? He came to judge the enemy. And the enemy's work in this world. Literally, he came to judge spiritual death. Because that's what had passed upon all men. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world, talking about the devil, be cast out. Jesus is saying the cross that he's going to go to in a very short period of time, the fulfillment of the scapegoat and the sin offering, will remove Satan from his position. We know it doesn't mean that he'll do away with him once and for all. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead meant that there was no more devil ever to deal with mankind. Wouldn't that have been great? But that's not what it means. Well, then what does it mean for the prince of this world to be cast out? We know that Satan is still the God of this world. Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost to speak decades later, writing to the church at Corinth, saying that Satan is the God of this world. So he's still here. He's still present. Well, then what's changed? What's changed is his place of authority. What's changed is his position. So Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now, how are you going to do that, Jesus? Verse 32. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. This said he, signifying what death he should die. So in other words, the type of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness which we know is Jesus going to the cross. Jesus speaks of in connection with the judging of this world and casting out the prince of this world. So here's the third type where Jesus represents, or I should say the symbol of Jesus, the type of Jesus, is a symbol of evil and not something holy. Why? Because Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to look with me to a couple other scriptures. Turn with me now to, where do I want to go? 
Turn with me to Psalm 2. I want you to see something that is, I believe, significant. You decide for yourself. But I place great significance on things that are spoken of over and over again in Scripture. The Bible itself says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So when God speaks by the Holy Ghost and says something again and again and again, that's something I believe that we should take note of. Don't you agree? Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, this is part of the prayer in uh, Acts chapter 4 that the disciples pray. This is where they're quoting from. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. What's the result of that? He that sitteth in the heavens, speaking of God, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me. Well, what decree is that? This is speaking of Jesus' first person. What decree did, Jesus, did God speak to Jesus? He said unto him, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And I want you to notice that phrase. This is speaking prophetically of Jesus upon whom God said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. When did God begot, beget Jesus? Well, most of us would think that he's talking about Jesus in the manger. But look with me over to Acts chapter 13. The Bible refutes that idea. It tells us that he's talking about a different time. Now, to, to beget means to bear in the sense of somebody being born. We think of, we the church, think of Jesus being born as the baby in the manger, the Bethlehem story. Acts chapter 13, uh, the, the passage of Scripture that I want to refer to is um, too long to read. It's Paul speaking to, um, in the synagogue at, at Antioch, at Pisidia, beginning in verse 16, it says, Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you that fear God, give audience. Now, I'm going to skip over some of this for the sake of time. He gives a, a short history, summary of Israel's history, starting with Abraham and ending with John the Baptist, who said that he was not the Messiah, but the Messiah was coming and he wasn't worthy to tie his shoes. So let's pick up reading in verse 26 after he gives this summary of Israel's history. Now remember, he's, he's preaching Jesus to Jews in the synagogue. So he says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Referring back to John the Baptist saying one was coming after him. He says, I'm here to deliver the word of salvation that John spoke of. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, 
nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day. They have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. So it's talking about Jesus dying on the cross, right? But God raised him from the dead. Please notice that this is part of Paul's message. It's part of the information that, uh, that we need to take notice of. He says the first time, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us their children. In that he has raised up Jesus again. Second time he mentions Jesus being raised again from the dead. In that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. Now let me stop and slow down here. Paul is telling us part of the gospel, or Paul is including as a part of the gospel message, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. But he quotes the second psalm, the verses that we just read, concerning the point in time that Jesus was raised from the dead. God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he said also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. I want you to realize what he's saying. Paul is preaching about Jesus and he says that the point in time that God said to Jesus, thou art my beloved son, this day have I begotten thee, was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, not the day that he was born in Bethlehem. Do you realize what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that Jesus was born again. Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus was at his new birth. Now turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 1. Psalm 2 is referred to in Acts chapter 13. Paul refers to it in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, let's start in verse 3 speaking of Jesus it says who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high he's talking about after Jesus finished the work of the sacrifice now remember the sacrifice is both the sin offering and the scapegoat both the offering of his blood the shedding of his blood and the passing of judgment upon him the passing of judgment upon him has to be spiritual death. It's not enough for the blood of Jesus to make us a new creature. The blood of Jesus paid the price for our sins, but it didn't change man's nature. See, if Jesus didn't have to die spiritually, 
as soon as he died on the cross, he could have come down, been resurrected, and said, okay, guys, that's done. That's why the three days in the heart of the earth were the important, just as important as dying on the cross. He had to be somewhere. Where was he and what was he doing? Well, if he fulfilled the type, the Old Testament types, then he was suffering the wrath of God, paying the penalty of God's judgment upon spiritual death. Remember what Jesus said about being lifted up on the cross. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Well, judgment of what? The spiritual death that passed upon all mankind. So here in Hebrews, he's talking about Jesus being the brightness of his glory. After he purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being so much, being made so much better than the angels as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto the, the, the Jews have a big deal about angels. At least a certain segment of the Jews count the angels as a big deal. So Paul is, is making a case that Jesus is greater than the angels. And here's his case. For unto which of the angels said he, said God at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now notice what he refers to Jesus being greater than the angels by. By God saying, I have caused you to be born this day. What day is it connected to? Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Why does Paul keep emphasizing Psalm 2, where it says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And why does Paul tell us specifically that that is connected to the time that God spoke that was when Jesus was raised from the dead? Because, folks, that was a major issue in Paul's doctrine. Major issue. Now, the church hasn't understood it for the most part. And so the church doesn't teach it. But it's every bit the foundation for who we are in Christ. Look when the Hebrews chapter 5. He's not through saying, talking about this. Hebrews chapter 5. He's talking about Jesus being our high priest. Uh, Where do you want to read? Let's start reading in verse, uh, let's start reading verse 3. And by reason hereof, he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. He's talking about a high priest. Here's the work of a high priest. To offer sacrifices to God for the people as well as himself. Verse 4, and no man taketh this honor unto himself. Nobody makes himself a high priest. But he that is called of God as it was with Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself. Jesus didn't make himself our high priest. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, this is God speaking to Jesus, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Here's the third time that Paul makes mention of it in the New Testament. Once in preaching to the, in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia, Twice writing to the church. Each time he's talking about the point in time, the day that God said to Jesus, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. 
What day was that? It was the day of Jesus' resurrection. Now, there's only one explanation. I've already stated it, but I want to state it again. There's only one explanation how Jesus could be born the day that he was resurrected. And that's if he's been born again from spiritual death. Look in the Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 5. There's a big passage of scripture here that I want to read, but we'll slow down at the important part. For under the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. The angels are not going to be in charge in the world that, that uh, comes after this one. The new heaven and the new earth, in other words. But one angel in a certain place testified, this is Psalm 8, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou made him a little lower than the angels. This word angels in the original Hebrew is the word Elohim. You made him a little lower than God himself. The angels are saying that, the, that uh, uh, they're questioning why God made man higher than them. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels or Elohim. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thine hands. You gave man a place of dominion. Why did you make man in a place of dominion? What is this thing called man that you have planned for so specifically? Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Now we usually ascribe these verses to Jesus. But it's really talking about how God put man in charge of the world. He gave man dominion. But we see Jesus. See, he hadn't been talking about Jesus up to that point. Now he will. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Again, this would be the Hebrew word Elohim. Talking about coming to the earth as a man. For the suffering of death. Now what death is he talking about? Is he talking about physical death on the cross? But if he's talking about physical death on the cross, folks, and Jesus died as our substitute, then you wouldn't have to die physically. He can't be talking about physical death. The suffering of death is talking about spiritual death. has to be. Jesus was made a little lower than God, took upon himself the form of a man, in other words, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. What death did Jesus taste? The word taste means experience. What death did Jesus experience for every man? If it's just physical death, then that means you don't have to die physically. That means nobody would ever have to die physically. If Jesus died physically for our, as our substitute, then you don't have to. Well, we know that's not scriptural. The Bible talks about the outward man is still decaying and subject to physical death, just not subject to the curse of the law. We come to the point in time where our bodies expire and we go home to be with Jesus. So he can't be talking about physical death. So then what death is he talking about? What does the Bible say Jesus, the death that Jesus tasted or experienced, what death did he experience so that you not have to? Spiritual death. Do you realize that not one person on the face of the earth, 
Not one person that's lived on the face of the earth since Jesus went to the cross has had to be separated from God. Now, man can be separated from God. He can maintain his position of spiritual death, but only by choice. Only by an active, determined will. That may be based on ignorance. Not knowing about Jesus, not knowing what's available, not knowing the truth of what he can be and can have. But it's still an active, determined will. But here the Bible says that Jesus tasted death for every man. He tasted death for every man. He tasted death. He experienced death, spiritual death, for every man. What does that mean? That means he paid the price for Adam's sin. Remember what God said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Talking about the tree that was forbidden. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Adam died spiritually that day. The light went out in his own spirit. Jesus died Adam's death. Adam went from life to death. Jesus went from life to death to being born again by the Father back to life. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus said of himself that he was the only begotten son of God. But nowhere does the Bible speak of Jesus as being the only begotten after his resurrection. The Bible speaks of Jesus as being the first begotten from the dead. The first begotten from the dead. Here where it says Jesus tasted death for every man, he experienced death for every man. That means every consequence that came on mankind as a result of Adam's sin. Remember Romans 5.12. Wherefore by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world. And death by sin. Sin opened the door to death. The real problem was death. The problem with the world is that they're spiritually dead, not that they're sinners. Spiritually dead people sin. Deal with the death issue. The sin issue takes care of itself. The issue is for people to pass from death unto life through the new birth. Now, do you remember we talked a couple of weeks ago? I don't remember exactly when, but it's been a couple of weeks. Remember we talked about Abraham offering Isaac on the altar? You remember how God had to, to, to ratify his covenant in Genesis chapter 22? He told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. He's got to see if Abraham is sold out to him in an equal ma- manner or measure that God is sold out to Abraham. He's finding if Abraham is committed enough so that Jesus can be offered as the son of God. Well, Abraham passes with flying colors. He offers Isaac on the altar. I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 22. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But one of the things that God said in Genesis chapter 22, when he was talking to Abraham, after the angel of the Lord kept uh, Abraham from, um, from 
putting the knife to, to Isaac and killing him. God said, by myself have I sworn. This is Genesis 22, verse 16. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for that because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. Now notice this last phrase in verse 17. And thy seed, Galatians 3 tells us that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Not seeds plural, but seeds singular. And thy seed, talking about Jesus, shall possess the gate of his enemies. Shall possess the gate of his enemies. Shall possess the gate of his enemies. Jesus fulfilled this when he was born again from the dead. On the day that God said to him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. You can't be born if you didn't die. You can't be born again spiritually if you didn't die spiritually. He can't be born again spiritually unless he died the death of spiritual death. At that point in time, Jesus possessed the gate of his enemies. You remember when he appears to John in Revelation? He said, I am he that liveth and was dead, but am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and death. What does that mean? That means Jesus possesses the gate of his enemies. His enemy being Satan. That goes back to tasting or experiencing death for every man. Spiritual death cannot hold anyone who chooses the life that is in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. Where he says there is no condemnation now to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's what he's talking about. Paul recognized that the authority that we have in Jesus. And remember Paul is the one that tells us. That we died with Jesus. We were buried with him in baptism. And we were raised to be seated at the right hand of the father with Jesus. He raised us when he raised him. We sat down when he sat down. He's talking about our place of authority. Paul is saying. That because Jesus died the death of Adam for you and for me and for everybody. If we'll take hold of that. Because he possesses the gate of his enemies. There is no consequence of spiritual death that came upon mankind that can hold you bound. If sickness is a consequence of spiritual death. Then the law of the life, then the law of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from it. If poverty and lack is a cause or is a result of spiritual death, the death of Adam, then it can't hold you bound. There is nothing that Satan can do here on the earth that can affect you and hold you back and hinder you if you realize that Jesus experienced death for you. Paul saw it. Paul got it. Paul tried to tell the church. But you start talking about Jesus dying spiritually and the church will hold up the cross at you like you're a vampire.
Jesus experienced death for you. What he took as your substitute, you need not take. Now, folks, I don't expect that I'm telling you. There may be a few minor points that you didn't see or didn't consider. But I don't expect that I'm telling you anything major that you didn't already know in some form or another. But the question is not do we know it. The question is do we know it. It's not a matter of do we understand this in our heads. It's a matter of are our spiritual eyes open to the truth. Because the people that have seen this truth from their spirits. They're the ones that have done exploits in the world. They're the ones like the Apostle Paul that we look at and say, man, he was superhuman. People like John Lake and Smith Wigglesworth and, and guys like that, maybe even guys that we don't know about that did even greater exploits than the, than the ones that we do know of. But those are guys that we look at and say, wow, they must have had something extra that we don't have. And what they really had was their spiritual eyes open to who they are. Same truth for you is available to them. Same truth they had is available to you. The question is, do we see it? Oh, that our eyes would be open to see it. Jesus experienced every aspect of the judgment of God in a land not inhabited. So that you wouldn't have to experience the least part of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you experienced death for each and every one of us. Lord, help us to do our part to tell the good news that nobody has to be separated from you any longer. But Father, we pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the church. And we understand a little bit more why he prayed it. He wanted the church to see the things that he saw. He wanted the church to understand the price that Jesus paid. So we pray, Father, even as Paul prayed, that you would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our spiritual understanding would be opened. That we would know the hope of our calling and the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers, which you wrought in Christ when you raised him from the dead and set him at your own right hand in the heavenly places. We pray, Father, also that you'd strengthen us with might by your spirit in our inner man. That Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. That we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and depth and breadth and height. And that we would know by experience the love of God which passes knowledge. That we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Holy Spirit. Help us to see. Open our eyes to who we are in Christ Jesus, to the power that already resides within us. Your power, because you dwell within us. Help us to see it. So that it may be said of us as it was said of others. Those that know their God shall do exploits. Help us, Lord, to do the works of Jesus in the power of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that was given to us. For it's in that name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a lot of things to chew on there, folks. Eat well. <laughs>